Well, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to speak on earlier in the week, and lo and behold, I opened up social media. And as I was looking through social media, somebody had posted a link. It was a link that I had seen before to an article, and the article warned that we ought to be very careful who it is that we call false teachers. Now, I wasn't going to mention the author of the article, but I think I'll go ahead and do it. Uh, The author's name was Wes McAdams. I'm not sure how many of you know this gentleman. He's fairly prominent within the Churches of Christ. Uh, And I don't normally read his material. Not to say that everything he writes is bad. However, he oftentimes toes the line on, on being unscriptural. And when you call him on it, he has been called on it publicly. His response usually is, that, that wasn't my intent, and you really just misunderstood. So I read back through his article that popped up. Oh, and let me say this. Uh, I, had a, I had a conversation sometime back about a very prominent preacher within the community church movement, called the gentleman out as a false teacher, and one of our fellow ministers in the Churches of Christ quoted from this article, and I say that just to let you know that this gentleman has some influence. He quoted from this article and said, you really shouldn't call that gentleman a false teacher. And I said, does he believe in the, in the church? He said, not the one church, no. I said, does he believe in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? He said, yeah, he teaches that. And we listed a bunch of things, and then his response was, what, what he teaches correct on baptism. So I bring all that up to say these types of articles have influenced members within the church. And so I saw the article pop back up, and it, and it said very clearly, we need to be very careful who it is we call as false teachers. And so I got out my Bible, and I began to compare it to what it is he wrote. The article went on to say that some people really aren't false teachers. Uh, They're just instead, and this is his exact words, they're just mistaken. They're not false teachers. They're just mistaken. I went and looked up the word mistaken, if any of you guys have never done that. Here's the definition for the word mistaken. Wrong in one's opinion or judgment. What that means is, is they are in error. And so if one is mistaken in their opinion or their judgment regarding the teachings of the New Testament, they are, they are a false teacher by the very meaning of the word. And I say that whether it's intentional or unintentional. And I'm going to go ahead and touch on that. But here I want to, I want to read you guys a quote. And oftentimes, again, and he's not the only author, but there are a number of uh, authors within the churches of Christ who write things and it sounds really good. Guys, you've really got to pay attention and you've got to read close. Okay, Here's, here's his exact words. He says, but Jesus teaches us to examine the fruit of people's lives. And if someone is full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, but they teach something incorrectly, they are not, and he had in all capital letters, they are not someone you need to go to war against. On the other hand, if someone is a lover of money, constantly quarreling and fighting or hateful and rude, this is the kind of person who needs to be sharply rebuked, silenced, and avoided. Now, I don't know if you realize what he just did right there, but what he did was he's making an appeal to look at somebody's emotional attributes as a determining factor on how it is that we're going to deal with them regarding false teaching. Let me point something out. A person can be moral, they can be loving, they can be kind, and they can still believe and adamantly promote things which are not found within our inspired scriptures. And I know that, and you know that, because we are surrounded by people all the time. I work with a number of people, good, moral people, uh, honest people who are very sincere in their beliefs, and yet they adamantly promote things which are not true. We have to point that out. 
Now, we know for a fact that there are both good and there are evil people who believe and promote error. Peter actually said there was going to be false teaching. Let's go on over to 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3. We're not done with his article here as we, as we begin to set up the sermon. But notice what Peter says. <clears throat> but there were false prophets. Let me go back and say one thing here. I'm not going to spend any time on the word prophet, but when you talk about the word prophet, you are, fine, you are talking about those who are teaching authoritatively God's will. Okay? And you have people who will pretend they are teaching authoritatively God's will, but in fact they're teaching something else. Same thing these false prophets were doing. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reasons of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. Now, I want to point something else out. In the article, and we already showed where he made an appeal to one's emotions before you deal with their false teaching, the author of the article went on to use the example of Apollos to describe who it was he labeled as a mistaken teacher as opposed to a false teacher. So I think we should go over and look at that account. So let's go on over to Acts chapter 18. Now remember again, the author says he's just mistaken. He's not a, he's not a false teacher. Well, let's go back and look to see what the Scriptures teach. And, and right after we get done with this, guys, we are going to turn the page. So just keep your finger there when we get done. I'll read one verse before, but we're going to go into Acts 19. Acts 18, verse 24, we'll read down to 28. We'll learn a little bit about Apollos. And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, was an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom, when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them much which had believed through grace. For he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly showing by the Scriptures that Jesus was Christ." Now. I'm going to get to this in a minute. Am I, am I suggesting that Apollos wasn't a good man and that he didn't have good intentions? Not at all. But the author here says, hey, Apollos wasn't a false teacher. Apollos was simply a mistaken teacher. He was simply uninformed. He was simply misinformed. Well, I'm going to point something else out. The author of this article wrote in a different article. I went and looked up a bunch of his uh, articles. He wrote in another article that... Uh, it's extremely beneficial to us as Christians to go back and to use different Bible versions as we study the Bible. And I would agree with that. I would agree with that. I use a number of versions. I use the King James. I use the ASV. I use the Modern Little Version. But even though he recommends it, I don't think he did it. And the reason I say that is, is and I'm going to go over to Matthew 22, 29, uh, because I want to point something out regarding Apollos and whether or not he was a mistaken teacher or a false teacher. Listen to Matthew 22, 29 before we get over to Acts 19. <clears throat> Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err. Now, this is the King James Version, but in the uh, International Standard Version or in the New American Standard Bible, it's actually rendered, You are mistaken. 
You're in error. You're mistaken. He goes on, and this answers the question, why was he in error or why was he mistaken? He goes on, Jesus does, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. Now let me point something out about Apollos. He says Apollos wasn't a false teacher. Apollos was just simply mistaken. Apollos only knew and only taught the baptism of John, which was looking towards the coming Messiah and towards the coming kingdom. Now, here's the problem. The church was already in existence, and the Messiah had already come and had set up His church. So whether or not the kingdom is present and or future, that's a doctrinal matter. Matter of fact, if you don't believe that, ask why we're constantly talking about premillennialism. Whether or not Jesus had come or whether or not Jesus had not come, again, that is a doctrinal matter. Now, Apollos, he didn't know any of this. Was Apollos a good man? Yes, he was. And we learn a lot in the Scriptures that Apollos was a good man. Matter of fact, he was a great benefit of the church. Was he misinformed or was he mistaken? Yes, he was. And because of that information, he was going out and he was giving teaching false information regarding baptism. And it needed to be corrected. As a matter of fact, go over to Acts 19, because right after we read about the account of Apollos, who is incorrectly teaching on baptism, John's baptism specifically, we then learn in Acts 19, verses 1 through 5, that somebody else had done that, possibly, I believe, the same one, Apollos, and the issue had to be corrected by an apostle. Notice Acts 19, verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> and again, remember, the author of the article says he's not a false teacher, he's just mistaken. Well, let's see if that's what Paul thought. And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus. And finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Spirit since ye believed? And they said unto, them, unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Spirit. Let me pause for a second. So not, we're going to find out that not only are they, do they not understand about baptism, they literally didn't even know about the Holy Spirit. You ever notice how it is when somebody is off on one thing? Quite often they're off on something else. Let's continue on. And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Spirit. Well, that's going to cause some questions for Paul. Verse 3, And he said unto them, Unto what then were you baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. And then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him that is on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now let me ask a question here, logically. Why did Paul have to go back and to correct their mistaken belief or their, their mistaken uh, understanding? Well, the very fact that he corrected them alludes us to the understanding that their belief was based on false teaching. Uh, they didn't understand. And yet, because what we find when we look at Apollos and when we look at the Ephesians, and because they wanted to do correctly, there was no need to go to war with them, as the author of that article stated. Uh, but there was still the need to teach them truth. <clears throat> I'm trying to get across the idea here, and let me just say, many people find it very offensive, and I'm not quite sure why, to say that somebody is a false teacher or that somebody has made an error, or that somebody does not understand. When we look at the teachings of Jesus, Jesus often condemned error. 
And it's not because he was trying to be a mean person, but because Jesus was promoting truth. And so simply what I want to do today is I want to go back and I want to focus on some of these same issues that we see today. And the, here's the reason why. We need to be bold enough and we need to be knowledgeable enough that when we hear something that is not accurate, we have the ability to go back and to correct it. Now, if you read that article, the article basically said he makes, he makes an appeal to their emotions. I mean, are they good, kind people? I mean, those aren't the kind of people you really need to go back and rebuke and so forth. We don't base whether somebody needs to be corrected on their emotional attributes. We base whether someone needs to be addressed and corrected simply by whether or not what they teach lines up with the Word. And that's simply what we find from Jesus. Let me read you one passage again here from Jesus. We just looked at it before we get into addressing these. <clears throat> Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. Guys, we are surrounded by people who do err because they simply do not know the Scriptures. And so today I'm simply, I just picked some of the big hitters. These are things I deal with pretty much on a daily basis. I have conversations about these. And a number of the items that I actually picked for today's lesson are items that I had questions and or conversations with others this week. Let's start with a big one. And for pretty much for every one of these, I'm going to use Jesus' words, <clears throat> but I'll support with others. Let's start with the faith-only error. Let's go on over to Matthew 7, 21. I started with this one because this is pretty much what's taught in virtually every religious group. The majority of religious groups around us teach faith only. You simply have to believe and you're all good. Uh, and I'm not discounting belief. Belief's required. Hebrews 11:6, John 8, 24, and a number of other passages. But let's notice what Jesus says. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Let me pause for a minute. If they are calling him Lord, Lord, would you get the understanding that they believe that he is Lord? I would. Jesus goes on, though, and he makes a distinction from people who simply believe or call him Lord. And he says, But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Jesus says, Just because you call him Master does not make you heaven bound. As a matter of fact, Jesus makes it very clear that there's more involved to just believing. Is, believing. is believing not necessary? Well, as I already mentioned, of course it is. It's necessary. Jesus says so in John 8, 24. I'm not going to go back and, and quote it by memory. But we know that belief is necessary, but Jesus goes on to make a distinction between belief to those also who do His will. Now, let's go on over to James 2, 19. The majority of people today teach you simply got to believe, and you simply, need to, you simply need to say the sinner's prayer. Uh, I was taught that when I was going to the community church. I never checked my scriptures to see if it was correct or not. Uh, and until really a few years later, it, it took an awful lot of studying before I realized that wasn't quite right. Somebody could have lovingly just given me one verse and that would have solved it. James 2.19 is where I'm going to start reading from. James is pretty much going to say the same thing Jesus teaches here. Remember, Jesus, he's, he does acknowledge in plenty of verses belief is necessary, but then he talks about doing the will of God. Listen to James 2.19. We'll read down to 24. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The demons also believe and tremble. Let me ask you a question. Do you guys think the demons are going to be saved? <laughs> no. Let's keep going. Verse 20. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? 
Was not Abraham our father justified? That word justified means to be made righteous. Was not Abraham our father justified or made righteous by works when he had offered Isaac, his son, upon the altar? Let me pause for a minute. If you guys go back to that account, and I'm not going to, but you'll remember he was commanded to sacrifice Isaac. He wasn't trying to earn his salvation. He was carrying out a command of God. And here they're associating it with works. How often have you heard someone in our religious world say, you can't, you can't do works to earn your salvation? Well, I touched on that in the, in the midweek lesson. No, I can't earn my salvation. But there are different types of works. There are works of obedience, works of God. Here we have a work of obedience. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac, that was a command, his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by that word there, if you look it up, uh, has the word ergo in it. I didn't look it up. I'm going by memory. But it's it simply carrying out action. And by works was faith made perfect or complete. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God. How do we know that he believed God? He did what God told him to do, right? You can't separate the two. He goes on. And it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, or made righteous, and not by faith only. Well, that's pretty much what Jesus just said, but James, by inspiration, says it just a little bit different. And let me point this out, and if, you are not made, uh, if you're not justified or made righteous by faith only, and James says you're not, then faith, salvation, faith only salvation is a lie. I mean... For all those around us who believe in faith-only salvation, the only thing I can say is, is you do err not knowing the Scriptures. And that may come across as harsh. Those are Jesus' words. Let's talk about another error that's around us all the time. I deal with this every day, and I'm sure that you guys oftentimes do too. You'll see it in articles that you read, and you'll have this conversation with a number of people. I'm talking about the universal salvation error. Kind of the idea of, well... We all believe in Jesus, but we all go to different churches and we all believe different things, but all people are really going to be saved in different ways. And again, I, let's go back and see what Jesus has to say on the matter. Matthew 7, 13 through 14. Jesus says, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life and few there be that find it." Now Jesus says here very clearly, there's just going to be a few people that are going to find eternal life. Remember, we've already had an example of people saying, didn't we call you Lord, Lord? And then He goes on and makes a distinction. That's not enough. It's the people that do the will of God. The will of God's our New Testament. Jesus makes clearly, there's only going to be a few people that are going to find eternal life. With that being said by Jesus, we know there is no such thing as universal salvation. And furthermore, since there's not universal salvation and there is so much confusion, there are also not tons of groups out there acceptable to God uh, simply because they say they believe in Jesus. There's a lot more involved in that. Let's go on over to 1 John 2, 3 through 6. Again, this really ties up with what we've already looked at from Jesus, what we really just looked at from James. 1 John 2, 3-6, And hereby we do know that we know Him. How do we know that? 
If we keep His commandments, how many of you guys know somebody that says they're a Christian, but they don't follow the commandments? They do things that clearly are not, they're clearly not acceptable. Here we have John calling out very clearly, you can know if you're a follower of God based on whether or not you keep the written word. Let's keep going. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby, we know, hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. If you have the idea that you can be saved in any way that you want, or in any group that you want, and that uh, being involved in all this is perfectly fine. The only thing I could simply say to you is, based on the words of Jesus, you do err not knowing the Scriptures. Let's look at another common error we see today. This is really tied in with the first one, and really kind of tied in with the second one that we looked at, and that is this. And how many of you have heard it? I hear it all the time. The baptism is not required error. Listen to Mark 16, 16. <laughs> I'm not going to break this down, but in the Greek, it is worded exactly as we find in the English. Uh, Mark 16, 16, this is Jesus. He that believeth and is baptized, that word and uh, in the Greek is kai, K-A-I, it's a coordinate conjunction, just like the word and in the English. He that believeth and is baptized, those two go together by the coordinate conjunction, shall be saved. All right, these are the two things you must do to be saved. Are they the only two things you must do? No, because we have a number of other things. Uh, we know that you have to believe, but we can look at other things that say we have to do them to be saved. But these are two that he points out. And, here's, and people get confused by this. Guys, if you believe in Jesus, are you going to follow all of the New Testament? <clears throat> if you believe the gospel plan of salvation, the things you need to do to become a Christian, are you going to do that? Yes, and the culminating act in every account is baptism. <clears throat> he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved... But he that believeth not, that word believeth not, uh, apostuo, is actually the word disobey. Okay? But he that disobeys shall be damned. Well, what are you telling me I need to do? I need to believe and I need to be baptized. The religious world around us, what do they say? Well, you need to believe, but you don't need to be baptized. Uh, Jesus makes this very clear here. You need to believe. And that word pistuo uh, is the opposite of the word here where he says, uh, believe not. Believe is pastuo, believe not is apostuo. Believe has action in it, just as disobey has action in it, okay? Majority of people around us today teach baptism is not required. Let's go on over to the Great Commission, one of the Great Commission accounts, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Most of you are familiar with this and can probably quote it. And Jesus came and spake unto them, he's talking to the apostles here, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. What was one of those? Well, what we noticed earlier, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and a number of other things. But teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always. Remember, he's talking to the apostles here, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Jesus before he leaves, tells them to go out to teach, to baptize, and to continue to teach, and to teach those people that you're teaching to do all the things that I have already commanded you. One of those was baptism. 
Now, for all the naysayers who say, well, you do need to believe, but you don't need to be baptized, I'm just going to read one verse, and then I'll move on. I could give a lot of verses, but I'm not going to spend my time on it. 1 Peter 3.21, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Let me pause for a minute. When it says also, here's what we understand. Baptism is not the only thing that saves you. I've had people accuse me. You, you guys within the churches of Christ simply believe if you get somebody wet, they're saved. I don't believe that. I don't know any sound gospel preacher that does believe that. Uh, and as a matter of fact, if you read 1 Peter 3.21, he shows us there are other things that, that save you. But this is just one of them. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, it's not a bath, but the answer of a good conscience, and the reason it's for a good conscience, it's where your sins are washed away. Going over to Acts 2 uh, verse 38. The answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is commanded, and because it saves, it's simply among those things required for salvation. If you don't believe that baptism is required as a part of salvation, you do err not knowing the Scriptures. Those are Jesus' words. Let's touch on the all churches are acceptable error. I have to admit I fell for this. You know, I was raised as a Catholic, uh, went to a number of different churches, primarily to a community church for about eight years uh, before we started going from church to church trying to find somebody that taught just the Scriptures. I fell for this. I work with people who have fallen for this. They simply believe it doesn't matter where you go. Again, I won't spend a lot of time on it, but we'll spend a few minutes. Let's go on over to Matthew 16, 18. Again, we'll look at the words of Jesus. Here he's talking to the disciples. He says, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Let me pause. Every time you find Jesus talking about the church, it's singular. The only time you find plurality of churches is when it's discussing Jesus' Jesus's church in different locations, right? Like a church in Rome, his church in Ephesus, his church in Corinth. It's all the same church, and I'll point that out here in a minute. They're just in different locations. But Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. Jesus would be sickened by what he saw today in the religious world around us. He says, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, let's go on over to Ephesians chapter 4, because I have had people actually try to say, hey, we find, we find plurality of churches in the New Testament. Uh, there's not just one church. There is just one church. And not only was there just one church, they were all supposed to believe and teach the same thing. And I'm not going to go back and spend much time on it, but when they didn't, you know what happened? They were corrected. They were corrected for their error. Listen to Ephesians 4, 3 through 6. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What is the unity of the Spirit? Well, we got our written word through the Holy Spirit. That actually would create everything that we're just now getting ready to say. There is one body, that's the church, and one Spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith. Let me pause again. Again, I'm not saying this to be offensive, but I try to, I try to break it down so easy because nobody did this for me before I was a Christian. There's one faith. There's not the Christian church faith. There's not the Catholic church faith. There's not the Episcopalian church faith. There's not the Meth... I mean, they are there. They're not approved faiths. There's just one faith, okay? One baptism, 
You got people today teaching baptism in the Holy Spirit, people teaching baptism in fire, people teaching baptism in water, some saying baptism sprinkling. There's just one baptism. In every conversion account, it's in water. Look the word up, it's hudor every time. Okay? There's one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. There is one church, one body. They all abide by the one faith. And so Christ's body or Christ's church is the body that is in alignment with the New Testament teaching, which is the faith. Jude 1.3. I can't make it any simpler than that. Now, some, some have the false idea that, well, I can't go anywhere but a church of Christ. There are churches of Christ that teach incorrect stuff, just as there are Christian churches that teach incorrect stuff and Baptist churches. And Don't simply go by the name on the building. That helps, you. that helps you get close to what you're looking for, right? You need to go back and find out what they teach. I spend a lot of time on Churches of Christ websites and find all kinds of craziness. I even read some of their articles once in a while and read some of their craziness. You need to find the body that's in alignment with the Word. And if you think worshiping with anybody is perfectly acceptable, you do err not knowing the Scriptures. Let's look at another one. This is common. How about the worship as you feel like in your heart error? Let's go on over to John 4, verse 23 through 24. Jesus is having a conversation here with the Samaritan woman. wish we could spend some time on that. I'm in the mood to, but I can't. John 4, 23 through 24. But the hour cometh and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, I'm not going to go back and spend time on what is the approved examples of worship and or the commands we have for worship within the New Testament. But I will say this, when I have the conversation with people about worship, I oftentimes have people say, we worship in truth and spirit. And here's the question, what is truth and how do you do it in spirit? You guys ought to automatically go over to John 17, 17. Notice what Jesus says, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. Well, if you're worshiping in spirit and in truth, in spirit is actually by the inspiration of the spirit. What was revealed to us? <laughs> that truth, the word of God through the inspiration of the spirit. To worship in spirit and in truth is to worship in the truth delivered through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If you think you can go anywhere on a, on a, on a Lord's Day, actually we have people who worship on days other than the first day of the week, uh, the, only, the only day authorized is the first day of the week, Acts 20, verse 7. You can have Bible study and things on other days, but to carry out the acts of worship, that's only, it's only seen done on the, on the Lord's Day and only authorized on the Lord's Day. But if you think you can go anywhere and worship however it is you want, you do err not knowing the Scriptures. Let's look at another one. Now, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this one. I'll be on the shorter side because I was fearful of going long, and I, I may go a little... <clears throat> I won't follow my notes probably here, but we're going to talk about, and this is affecting everybody, I put this on here because not only is it affecting people within the church, it's affecting certainly people without the church. And I even had a conversation this week with a brother uh, who they had to go and correct a fellow Christian who is living in sin, uh, and it's because of this. 
It's the all marriages are simply perfectly fine if they make you feel good kind of air. I don't know what else to call it but that. Let's break it down a little bit. And so if you will, let's go on over to Matthew 19, 1 through 9. That's what I wrote down there, so we'll follow it pretty close. I'll probably go a little longer. But let's get a gist of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is giving an authoritative teaching on marriage and divorce and also remarriage. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, He departed from Galilee and came into the coasts of, coasts of Judea beyond Jordan. And great multitudes followed Him, and He healed them there. The Pharisees also came unto Him, tempting Him, and saying unto Him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Let me pause for a second. When it says they're tempting him, here's what they're doing. You have Sadducees and Pharisees in the crowd. The Sadducees believe that you could put your spouse away for whatever you want. If she cooked the bread and you want to put her away, go ahead. The Pharisees taught that you could only do it for sexual immorality. So why are they tempting him? Well, no matter what he answers, they believe he's going to split the audience in half. Right? He's going to lose half his followers. They did this to him quite often. But he goes on. <clears throat> and he answered and said unto them, have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? That's Genesis 1.27. And he said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Let me pause for a minute, because I didn't really get this until I really studied. When it says what God has put together, let not man put asunder, here's what it means. God gives the requirements for when you can end a marriage. Okay, If you do not meet those requirements, you may not end a marriage. It doesn't matter if the courthouse will. You can't do it. You have to meet the requirements by God to end a marriage. So man cannot do it. Let not man put it. He says, what therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. They try to get him now. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? Verse 8. He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso, whoso marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery. And I was going to stop there, but let me keep going on. And here's the reason I'm going to continue to go on. He tells, his, he tells his, uh, the people this and the crowd, and the disciples hear it, and they're like, oh, that's a hard teaching. Notice what they say. And his disciples say unto him, if the case of man be so with his wife, what's the case? You can only put her away for fornication. It is not good to marry. That's their, that's their response. Now notice verse 11. But he said unto them, All men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. Listen closely. For there are some eunuchs. Do you guys know what a eunuch is? Without going into detail. A eunuch, a male eunuch, he's had a certain portion of his anatomy removed and he cannot have physical relations. Okay? For there are some eunuchs, or those that cannot have physical relations, which were so born from their mother's womb, they were born that way. And there are some eunuchs, people who are, who are not able or will not have physical relations, which were made eunuchs of men, and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs 
for the kingdom of heaven's sake. They're choosing not to do it for the kingdom of heaven. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. Now, <clears throat> there are a lot of other verses I'm not going to go to. I did put some of them in your notes. Other uh, verses that support what I'm talking about here would be Matthew 5, 31 and 32, uh, Mark 10, 1 through 12, Luke 16, 18, and a number of other passages. Here's the question we want to ask, and it's because we see this all the time. <clears throat> to whom do these verses apply? Who exactly is he talking to? And to who, who are the people that have to fall in alignment with this? Well, in the context here of Matthew 19, I think I read down to 13, Matthew 19, 1 through 13, Jesus makes a number of points that tell us that what he is teaching here applies to Christian and non-Christian, or if you want to put it in the words of the New Testament, to both Jew and to Gentile. He actually goes back to Genesis, and by quoting from Genesis, uh, Jesus is making the point, this was God's original design from the very beginning, and it's not changed. Right? You are to leave and to cleave as we look over in Genesis 2.24. Now, regarding divorce, I'm going to go back to Matthew 19.8. I'm not going to read it all. Jesus says this, But from the beginning it was not so. Why did, he say, why did he say from the beginning? Why didn't he not say at the beginning? Why did he say from the beginning? By saying that, he is showing us that from the very beginning of time, this was the will of God through all dispensations. If it wouldn't have been the will of God continually, he would have said at the beginning, but he didn't. He said from the beginning. Do you guys get the distinction there? He is pointing out that this has always been God's will. And Jesus shows that and he confirms that in his teaching to the crowd. Now in the very next verse, Regarding the actual act of divorce, listen again to what he says. This is Matthew 19, 9. And I say, and I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. That word there, uh, adultery, we're talking about uh, fornication. Um, I'm not going to spend any time in great detail, but it has to be explained. Uh, this, is, this is any act with a person to whom you're not married, including the genitalia. I'm going to stop there. Uh, he says, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. Who does this apply? I want you guys to remember this very close. I have had people try to tell me, and I'll touch on it here in a second, but I've had people try to say, this only applies to the non-Christian. This does not apply to the Christian. Go back and look at the word whosoever. Who does that apply to? Men, women, Christians, non-Christians. I don't care who you are. You fall into the group of whosoever. This applies to all people. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you fall into the category of whosoever. And if you do this, you put your spouse away for a reason other than fornication, you commit adultery. Guys, this causes people to not become Christians. We've all seen it with our own eyes. It causes people to leave the church. It's caused a number of problems. Do the passages apply today? 
well, I had to cover this because you're even going to find, you're going to find a lot of people that will say, no, it doesn't. And I have come into contact even with people within the churches of Christ who say, this doesn't apply today. And if you go back and talk to them, here's, their, here's the argument. I'll, I'll give it to you in a nutshell. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was teaching Jews. And so everything Jesus taught was Old Testament. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're not part of the New Testament. We have to follow the Gospels, but the, the teachings of Jesus, that wasn't, that wasn't Gospel. <laughs> Sounds good, doesn't it? Well, Matthew records otherwise. Let's go on over to Matthew chapter 4. And again, remember, people, you'll find people saying, Jesus wasn't teaching the gospel yet. Uh, Jesus was teaching simply to the Jews, and so this isn't New Testament doctrine. Let's see what Matthew records for us by inspiration. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, he's teaching Jews, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. What's he preaching? The gospel. The good news. Let's keep going. <clears throat> and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. Let me pause. You got people saying, Jesus didn't, he wasn't teaching the gospel. He was just teaching to Jews, and this is Old Testament. Oh, no, 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 no. As a matter of fact, in the very next, uh, the very next chapter, after we find he's preaching the gospel there in Matthew chapter 5, he starts teaching on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. That's part of the gospel. But if that's not enough for you, let's go on over to Luke 16, 16. Because Luke writes by inspiration that Jesus uh, said that since, the, since John the Baptist, the gospel had been proclaimed. Again, talking about the kingdom. Listen to Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were until John. John who? John the Baptist. The law and the prophets went up until John. You guys remember what John was going out and preaching and teaching? The kingdom and baptism for the remission of sins. That's why here when it says the law and the prophets were until John, we've got the gospel starting to be proclaimed. Part of that was New Testament teaching on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. To teach anything other, other than what Jesus teaches on marriage, divorce, and remarriage or any other topic is simply to go against the scriptures. It's to teach another gospel. And, and Let's go ahead and begin to ask or answer a couple more questions because I get these all the time. Okay, so you can put away a spouse for fornication, and that's the only reason you can put away a spouse. Uh, what about the unfaithful person that was put away? Can they marry? You've got people teaching that. Uh, I'm not going to go over and, and address their primary passages, uh, but I will simply say this. There's no scripture anywhere anywhere within our New Testament gives the adulterer the right to go out and to remarry, even though we find that the faithful spouse is allowed to, Matthew 19, verse 8. Now, they'll try to misuse some scriptures, but you don't find that anywhere. That's simply the consequence of their action. And he makes it very clear that if they do go out and remarry, they commit adultery. Okay? Now, we also find, though, that there is the right of remarriage given to a certain group of people, and that is widower, widowers or widows. You'll find that over here in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. And so let me break it down very simple. Who can get married? If you have never been married, you are eligible to marry someone else who is eligible to be married. That's the best way to word that, right? If you've never been married, you could marry someone else who either has never been married 
Or if there was a person who had put away a spouse for fornication, they're eligible to be married, you could marry them, right? Or let's say their spouse had died, you could marry them. So here's who can marry. Those who've never been married can marry an eligible person. Those who have had a spouse die can marry an eligible person. Uh, and those who have put a spouse away for fornication, they can marry an eligible person. Those are the only people that can marry. Never married, put a spouse away, my spouse died. That's as simple as we can make it. That's who can marry. The unfaithful one who was unfaithful to their spouse and committed adultery, the consequence by Jesus himself is they do not have the right to remarry. Now, I have to touch on this because, again, this is... This is really taught uh, Bale's doctrine. If you guys don't know who that is, uh, I'll just I'll mention his name so you can look him up. Uh, it's complete error. It's easy to disprove that it's error. How long does the adultery in Matthew 19.9 last? I have to bring that up because there are some that say, well, if you, once you get baptized, you're good to go because baptism washes away sins. Baptism does wash away sins when you enter into Christ. However, the idea is, is you washed away sins and you sin no more. If you're living with somebody that's not your spouse and you're fornicating with that person you're not eligible to be married to, you're sinning over and over and over and over again. So how long does the adultery in Matthew 19.9 last if you've put away your spouse and married someone you're not eligible to be married to? Notice the word adultery is in the present tense. It's indicating continuous action. And the idea is this, and it goes back to what we had mentioned earlier, man cannot put asunder the two people that God has put together. Only God can do that. And so a continued sexual act with a person you're not eligible to be married to is continual sin over and over and over and over again. And the only way to, to deal with the sin problem is to stop the sin, which means you can't do that anymore. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot more time on that, but the, the teaching is very simple. The adultery is an ongoing action because you're continuing to have sexual relations to somebody you're not eligible to be married to. Why are you not eligible? Because you put them away for a reason other than fornication. Now, here's Jesus' answers very simply. Can a person divorce for any cause and then retain the right to go out and to remarry? He says no. Well, when can I divorce and have the right to remarry? If and only if my spouse has been sexually unfaithful to me. Matthew 19.9 well, what happens if a spouse does divorce for a reason other than fornication and they remarry? They commit adultery. Matthew 19, 9. Okay? To whom does this teaching apply? To whosoever. To everybody. Matthew 19, 9. None of that, none of that was my personal opinion. I simply gave the teaching of Jesus and explained to you the consequences for our actions. That's why we, we stress so so much on the institution of marriage when you decide to make that decision. There are a lot of people who think you can divorce your spouse for whatever, some thinking that being baptized makes it good, and a whole host of other things. But guys, if you believe any of that, ye do err not knowing the Scriptures. Now, my goal today really was not to simply aggravate people, but my goal was this, to say lovingly. I looked at an article which said, just because somebody teaches wrong on the Bible doesn't mean they're a false teacher. They're just mistaken. And guys, we looked at an example of somebody who was mistaken, and we saw that their teaching had to be corrected by an apostle. They can be very loving. They can be kind. They can be moral. But very simply put, if it does not line up with the Scriptures, it is 
false teaching. I'm not saying you've got to stab the guy in the neck and correct him right there. What I'm saying is they do need to be corrected, right? And we're not, we're not trying to be aggressive and mean. We're trying to get people to go to heaven. And people will not be heaven-bound if they err because they do not know the Scriptures. Now, as I draw this to a close, I, I normally do it pretty much the same way, and that's because I don't know who's listening. Uh, I am concerned that every single person has become a Christian, and I want you to become a Christian the way the Bible tells you to become a Christian, not my personal opinion. You will find a number of conversion accounts throughout the book of Acts. You'll find a number of commands of things that are required for one to become a Christian. Today, the religious world has tried to simplify it into this. Just believe in Jesus. You don't find that anywhere in the Bible. Do we find the command to believe? Absolutely. Hebrews 11:6, John 8:24. You have to believe. Matter of fact, Jesus says if you don't, you're going to die in your sins, John 8:24. You also need to repent of your sins. That means you need to have an understanding of sin and the consequence of sin. Go back and look up Romans 3:23 and 6:23. Because all people have sinned and come short of the glory of God and because there's a consequence, Jesus says all people everywhere need to repent. Again, that's a command. Is it any more important than believing? Nope. Just one more thing you need to do. Can you just believe and just repent? No. We have a passage that says you need to confess unto salvation, Romans 10, 9 and 10. And if the Bible says you need to do something unto salvation, you need to do it. So you need to hear the word, believe, you need to repent, you need to confess, and then you need to be immersed in water for the remission of sins. We looked at the passage earlier, Mark 16, 16. Go over and look at Acts 2.38, 1 Peter 3.21, Galatians 3.26 and 27, Romans 6, 3 and 4, and we could continue to list them. There's about 77 passages, I believe, talking about baptism. Why? It is the culminating act in every conversion account. When the people have done the culminating act in those conversion accounts, we find they are added to the church by the Lord Himself, Acts 2, verse 47. If you have not done that, I urge you go back and ask yourself, what did you do to become a Christian? What were you added to? If you're here and you are a Christian, I, I encourage you, go back and look at, look at the things you have done throughout the week. Look at the areas you have fallen short. Simply rep repent of those, turn from them, and again be faithful. 1 John 1, 7 through 9, and His blood will continue to cleanse you. If you are here and there's a way that we can help you in any way spiritually, you can simply come forward as we are led in a song of invitation.